I'd like to ask you to turn with me to our text uh, for this morning, which is Psalm 120. Psalm 120. And as Matt mentioned, we are continuing our sermon series looking at the Psalms of Ascent, which is uh, Psalm 120 through 134. Last week we began this series actually by looking at uh, Hebrews 12 and talked about what it means to be a disciple of, uh, of Jesus Christ. And uh, that's really how we're framing this entire series, that these psalms are sort of a masterclass in discipleship and informing us as people uh, who follow after God and who follow after Jesus Christ. And so we begin our exploration of those this morning. Psalm 120, and this is what the psalmist writes. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you and what more besides you deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals from the broom brush. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, a few years ago I heard a definition of change that I found helpful. It said this, change is what happens when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of change. Change is what happens when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of change. In other words, what that means is that we as human beings often won't make a change in our lives unless we become so dissatisfied with the way things are, so dissatisfied with the status quo that it begins to outweigh our fear of what a change would look like or what it would take to get there. As long as things are at least tolerable for us in our lives, we'll probably stay the same. It's when they become intolerable that we make a change. And I'll just say that I've found that to be true both in my own life as well as in the lives of others. Uh, For myself, uh, I think that's often been the case. The changes that I've made in my own life over the years have often happened when I reached a point of feeling like they absolutely needed to. Um, The pain of staying the same became greater than the pain of changing for me. But I've seen the same thing in other people's lives too. You see, this is one of the privileges and also responsibilities of serving as a pastor. Um, It's that you're often called to enter people's lives at some of their most significant and critical moments. As one of my seminary professors used to joke, as pastors, we're often there for the hatchings, matchings, and dispatchings in people's lives. So the hatchings, the births and baptisms, the matchings, uh, weddings and and marriages, and then the dispatchings, deaths and funerals. His point, though, was that it's often when people are going through some of the biggest changes in their lives that they call their pastor. And so sometimes you get to see people navigate those changes well in the way that you maybe hope they will. Uh, More than once I've been privileged to be there in the room when someone has come to the conclusion that they can't keep doing things the, the, the way that they've been doing them. The pain of staying the same has become greater than the pain of change. And so they decide to make a change. And those moments are often some of the best and most fun in ministry. Other times, though, people can't quite get there. 
For whatever reason, the pain of staying the same hasn't become great enough for them yet. It's not motivating them to some sort of change or difference yet. They're not ready to take that step, not ready to make that move, not ready to venture into the unknown of what a change would look like or what it would require of them. And so you leave them as they are and you wonder to yourself, what will it take for them to get there? Psalm 120 is the psalm of someone who has gotten there. It's the psalm of someone who's fed up with the way things are, fed up with the norm, and so they're ready to make a change. I call on the Lord in my distress, the psalmist writes, and he answers me. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you, and what more besides you deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom brush. Can you hear the desperation there? The pain over the way things are, the not so subtle, I can't take this anymore? That's the tone of this psalm. The person who wrote this psalm is someone who sees themselves surrounded by falsehoods and fabrications, fake friends and traitors, opportunists and enemies. Everyone is out to get him. Everyone is talking about him behind his back, and everyone's taking advantage of him, and he can't take it anymore. And so he cries out, Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Those might seem like unfamiliar words to us. Dwelling in Meshach, tents in Kedar, what does that mean for us 21st century people a couple millennia later and half a world away? Well, for the original Israelite audience of this psalm, Meshach was a far-off foreign tribe who lived somewhere up north uh, in Asia Minor, probably modern-day Turkey or Russia. And the Kedar were a wandering Bedouin tribe of barbaric reputation who lived somewhere in Arabia. And so given the geographical distance between those two, one of them's way up north above Israel, the other one is way down south, lower than Israel, the psalmist isn't saying that he literally lived among both of these two tribes. That would be impossible. Instead, what he's trying to express is that the conditions of his life have made him feel like an exile, like an outsider, like somebody who's far from home, far from where he wants to be, possibly even far from God. The psalmist here is saying that he feels like a foreigner who is being forced to live in hostile territory on enemy turf. That's the reality of his life right now. That's the situation that he feels that he's facing. That's what normal has started to look like for him. And so he continues, too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The biblical word for peace, at least the Hebrew one, is shalom, but it's not the kind of peace that you might think of when you hear that word in English. Often when we hear that word in English, peace, we think of an absence of conflict. To have peace means that no one's fighting, no one's arguing, no one's attacking or antagonizing anyone else. So for example, according to that definition of peace, when two countries aren't fighting, when they're not at war, we would say that they have peace with each other. If they're not fighting a lot in their home, we would say that a husband and wife have a peaceful marriage. If two neighbors can coexist well with each other, then we would say that they are at peace with each other. But that's not biblical peace. That's not 
shalom peace. And it's not the kind of peace that the psalmist is talking about here either. Instead, shalom is a, it's a deeper, fuller kind of peace. That's because according to scripture, shalom is a flourishing kind of peace. It's an abundant peace. It's in the words of theologian Neil Planninga, the way things are supposed to be. It's two countries who aren't just not fighting each other, but who are actively allied together and supporting each other. It's not just a husband and wife who don't fight, but instead a husband and wife who go out of their way to support and serve and cherish each other. It's two neighbors who don't just coexist, but actually look out for and befriend one another. That's what shalom looks like. It's the best that things can possibly be. And that's the kind of peace that this psalmist is saying that he's ready to see in his life. The problem is that no one else around him seems to be ready for that. The psalmist is all for peace, but those around him, his acquaintances, his neighbors, his friends, even his family, they're not. Instead, he says they're for war. They're for violence. They're for hatred, treachery, and deception. And so that's why the psalmist needs to make a change here. That's why he can't keep going on like this. That's why he's finally at the point where he realizes that something has to shift because he's taken stock of his life and he's realized this is not the way I want things to be. This isn't how he wants to live. This isn't what he wants normal to look like anymore. And so that's why in his desperation, in his pain, in his distress over the way that things are, the psalmist finally turns to the Lord. The Bible has a word for that. It's called repentance. Now normally when we think of the word repentance, we think of apologizing or asking forgiveness or saying that we're sorry for something that we've done wrong. And that's certainly part of it. That's one way to use the word and it's certainly one way that scripture uh, talks about repentance, but it's not the only one. You see, the word the Bible most often uses for repentance is the Hebrew word shuv. And I'm not mispronouncing that, by the way. Um, in Hebrew, B's are often pronounced with a V sound, and so if you want to use the Hebrew version of my name, you can call me Pastor Vranden. Okay? Shuv. This is the Hebrew word for repentance. And what that word literally means is to turn around, to face the other direction, to, to return, to bring back. It's the idea of somebody who's walking in one direction when all of a sudden they stop and they turn on a dime and they head back the exact opposite direction. It's a 180 degree turn, an all encompassing shift, a course correction that involves literally every part of one's life. And it's that kind of shift that the psalmist is saying he needs here in his own life. In fact, it's the kind of shift that we all need in our lives at one point or another at least if we're to be people who live out the Christian faith. You see, in the long obedience that is the Christian life, repentance is, in many ways, the first step. There's a reason why this is the first psalm in the Songs of Ascent. Repentance is the realization that things can't keep going the way that they are. Life can't go on this way. We can't go on this way. 
Now, sometimes that realization has more to do with the circumstances of our life than us ourselves. That's what the psalmist is getting at here. He's not saying that he's repenting. He's simply saying the circumstances of his life are such that he needs to make a change. Like we talked about last week, in many ways, we live in a culture that is anti-discipleship, at least when it comes to discipleship to Jesus Christ. Ours is a world that militates against faithfulness, obedience, perseverance, and even the most basic forms of Christian belief. And so sometimes that first step of repentance in our lives is simply saying no to the things that the world says yes to. As Eugene Peterson writes in the book uh, on on these Psalms that we're using along with this series, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, People submerged in a culture swarming with lies and malice feel as if they are drowning in it. They can trust nothing they hear, depend on no one they meet. Such dissatisfaction with the world as it is is preparation for traveling in the way of Christian discipleship. The dissatisfaction coupled with a longing for peace and truth can set us on the pilgrim path of wholeness in God. Peterson goes on, A person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think the the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice, or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment, or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility, we are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she, acquires an appetite for the world of grace. And that's so true. As long as we're willing to keep buying the world's solutions to our dissatisfactions, then we're not going to feel the need to buy God's, are we? It's like eating junk food only to realize that it doesn't truly satisfy or nourish us. And so we're back at the table again in an hour, you know, hungry again and binging everything in sight. You see, it's not until we realize that this world doesn't really have much of anything at all to offer us that we'll finally be ready to repent, to shove, to turn back to God and find our satisfaction in him. Sometimes that realization does have to do with us, though. We realize that it's, it's not just the world out there that's the problem. It's not just the world that's wrong. It's us, too. It's our hearts, our warped and twisted desires. It's our selfish arrogance. It's our misplaced belief that we can somehow rule our lives and make all of the wrong things right again. Once more, as Eugene Peterson writes, repentance is not an emotion. It's not feeling sorry for your sins. It is a decision. It is deciding that you have been wrong in supposing that you could manage your own life and be your own God. It is deciding that you were wrong in thinking that you had or could get the strength, education, and training to make it on your own. It is deciding that you have been told a pack of lies about yourself and your neighbors and your world. And it is deciding that God in Jesus Christ is telling you the truth. Repentance is a realization that what God wants from you and what you want from God are not going to be achieved by doing the same old things, thinking the same old thoughts. Repentance 
is a decision to follow Jesus Christ and become his pilgrim in the path of peace. And of all places, the one where I've personally seen that lived out most clearly was when I was in prison. I always like to introduce this story that way, by the way, because it has a way of getting people to sort of sit up and pay attention again. You know, we're a little ways into the sermon, so. Back in 2011, I spent a week in prison at Angola State Penitentiary in Louisiana, which is about an hour north of Baton Rouge, and I was there as a guest, so I probably lost your attention again. Um, I was there with a, a whole group of students and professors from Calvin Seminary, and we spent a week at Angola living on the campus of the prison and observing and participating in the on-site Bible college that they've been running there for the last 26 years. That's why we were there. Now, for those of you who don't know, um, Angola Prison, or Louisiana State Penitentiary, as it's also known, um, is a maximum security prison for the worst of the worst offenders in Louisiana. In fact, uh, the only people who get sent there are either people who have a life sentence, um, they're going to serve out the rest of their lives there, or a death sentence, because Angola is where Louisiana has its death row. In other words, if you go to Angola, you're not getting out. One way or another, if you're sent to Angola, uh, you're going to die there. So what that means is that the entire inmate population at Angola are exclusively murderers. And as you can imagine, uh, at a place like that, it has a very bloody history. In fact, for a long time, Angola was considered one of the most violent prisons in the U.S. It had uh, some of the highest rates of guard on inmate violence, inmate on guard violence, and inmate on inmate violence. Nicknamed the Alcatraz of the South, the simple fact is that there were a lot of people who died there long before they ever finished their sentences. In 1995, though, in the new warden at Angola, Burl Kane, had an idea. What if, he wondered, we were to start a fully accredited Bible college on our campus? We could train the inmates in biblical studies and interpretation, preaching, pastoral care, and counseling, and then when they graduate, they could serve as chaplains to their fellow inmates both here at Angola, and we can also transfer them to other prisons in the Louisiana prison system, and they can serve as chaplains there as well. Just about the craziest idea you can imagine, right? But that's what they did. And like I said, it's been going on for 26 years now. And the impact has been profound. First of all, the, the impact on Angola itself has been nothing short of miraculous. Uh, in the time since that Bible college has opened, Angola has gone from being one of the most violent prisons in the U.S. to one of the safest. It now hosts nine Christian chapels on its campus, which are pastored by inmates who have previously gone through the program. There's an arena where they host an annual rodeo for the public, and it sells out every year. There's a golf course, and even an inmate-run newspaper and radio station. And they really do send graduates of that program to other prisons uh, around the state of Louisiana, by the way. They call them inmate missionaries. And because they're inmates themselves, they can go places and connect with inmates in those prisons that normal prison ministries run by outsiders simply don't have access to. In short, Angola has been transformed by the presence of that Bible college on its campus, and that's why we were there. That's what we were there to study. But that's only because the inmates themselves were transformed first. And that's what I got to see firsthand when I was there. We sat in those classes with those students, we talked with them, we heard their stories, and again and again, 
They talked about the impact that that Bible college had had on them. Again, these, these guys were murderers. These were men who had committed unspeakable acts of violence, people whom society had determined were unsafe to ever be set free again. They were locked up there, and the key was as good as thrown away. And yet when I met them, they were some of the most humble, most gracious, most kind, most generous people I've ever met. And it was all because of Jesus. And that's what they would say. That's what they told us. Before this program, they'd say, before I met Jesus, I mean really met him. I was somebody else. I was somebody terrible. I was somebody who you would not have wanted to meet out there on the street. But now, now I'm so different. Everything about me has changed. That's what God has done for me through Jesus Christ. He's made me a different person. And it was true. You could see it in them, talking with those guys. Murderers who had become missionaries to their fellow inmates. Violent men who had become disciples. Guys who were destined to die there in prison, who had been captivated by a Savior who had died for them first. And it had transformed them. They were no longer the people they used to be, no longer living the kind of life they once had, no longer walking far away from God. Instead, now they were walking with him. That's repentance. That's what it looks like, to be going one direction, one way, and then to turn around and head the exact opposite. That's the kind of transformation. And that's what this psalm directs us to do, too. Like we said, this is the first of the songs of ascent. These were pilgrim songs that Jewish worshipers would have sung as they made their way to the temple in Jerusalem for the various religious festivals in Israel's religious calendar. And while it's not as explicit as the next one or some of the other psalms that we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks, this psalm directs our attention to God. It orients us around him and directs our eyes upward toward him. It refocuses us on his lordship over our lives and it reminds us that our repentance, our shoving, our turning back is always and only towards him. I call on the Lord in my distress, the psalmist writes, and it's a reminder. It's a reminder for all of those Israelite pilgrims so long ago as well as for us today that God is the one that we turn back to. He is the one we must step toward in the long obedience of the Christian faith. He is the one who takes away all our distress and saves us from what threatens us on the way. Which of course brings us to the gospel this morning. You see, God has revealed that truth, his redemption, his deliverance, his salvation most clearly in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Like those Jewish worshipers so long ago, he too once made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He also ascended a mountain. And he did so not with the words of a song of ascent on his lips, but instead with the words of a psalm of lament, Psalm 22 on his lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, when Jesus went up that mountain, he went not to worship at the temple, 
but to die on a cross. He went to Jerusalem not as a joyful worshiper, but instead as a sacrificial lamb. He went on that long pilgrimage not to lift up praises to God, but instead to be lifted up himself in our place, on our behalf, to pay for our sins. And it's because of him that we can repent, shuv, return to and turn back to God in the first place. That's what he made possible. In his grace, his mercy, his love, and his unwavering commitment, God made it possible through Jesus Christ for us to live as his people, as his disciples, as those walking the long road of obedience towards him once more. And so we do. We turn back to him. We repent, and we walk the long obedience towards him as the pilgrims, the disciples, who he's called back to himself as his people. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, there is so much in our lives that could keep us just going the way we're going. Sometimes it's busyness. Sometimes it's enjoyment. Sometimes it's ignorance. And yet, in all of our lives, through the work of Jesus Christ and the power of your Holy Spirit, you bring us to a point of realizing that whichever direction we're going, we instead need to be going towards you. Whether it's things in our own lives or the circumstances that surround us, Lord, remind us that you are the one we journey towards. You are the one we walk towards. And you are the one we walk with. In Christ's name, amen.